Welcome back to the Ripley Recall, a 40-minute podcast shared every week right here from beautiful Camp Ripley in central Minnesota. I'm your host, Mr. Tony Housie, U.S. Army retired. This podcast will focus on the people, the mission, and the innovations that make up the citizens, soldiers, and airmen here in Minnesota. You can log in through the link in the description for the latest events and activities of Camp Ripley and the Minnesota National Guard. Joining me today are Colonel Charles Rankin and Command Sergeant Major Ryan Hofstede of the 1st Armor Brigade Combat Team, 34th Infantry Division. Gentlemen, welcome. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Gentlemen, for those that uh, you know may not know you, could you give us a little bit of your background? So I grew up as a 11 Charlie Mortarman and then became a 19 Delta Scout and then became an engineer. So I've been in many of the battalions within the brigade growing up through there. I uh, was a first sergeant in HHT and then the CSM of the 9-4 cab before coming to the Armor Brigade combat team. Uh, kind of a crazy story, but I grew up on Little Falls, and I always heard about Camp Ripley, drove by it, and then came out here as a high school senior when I was a senior at Little Falls and uh, with Mike Bellows, and all of a sudden, you know, nine months into my freshman year of college, uh, I joined the Guard as a fueler uh, at the 434th MSB back in 1994, I uh, went and joined ROTC my, in my third year in the Guard and uh, got called to flood duty in 97 up in the Red River Valley and found these infantry guys. I thought, boy, this is really cool. I was, a 19, well, I was probably 21 at the time, and then I decided to branch infantry after that experience and joined 2136 back in 1997-98 and uh, kind of stayed in 2136 through the Iraq deployment. I was a company commander uh, for Bravo Company, then Moved up to the division headquarters. I did the uh, uh, some time there. Went back to 136, deployed to Afghanistan, and then uh, became the G5 of the division. Uh, got selected for battalion command at 2135. Uh, deployed uh, to the Horn of Africa with that team. And then I, I got really fortunate to come back and take brigade command here for the, uh, for 1st Brigade. Colonel Rankin, you've had the fortunate experience of not only being the brigade commander, but have been a member and a soldier, a regular Joe of the brigade for almost your entire career. What does it feel like to take charge of the organization you've contributed to the history of? Yeah, I share with people, you know, I, I, I enlisted in this brigade when I was 19 years old as a private. And uh, now being the brigade commander, it's uh, 28 years in the making. Uh, my son, well, he, he's going to join ROTC, but he said he'd like to just start as a captain. So I was like, well, it doesn't quite work that way, but uh you know, uh, for me, you know, joined the Army in 94, uh, making E4, then a cadet for a couple of years, and then becoming a lieutenant. What I've watched from the guard that we had in 1994 was, you know, that old motto of one week in a month, two weeks a year. Uh, well, that doesn't really hold true. I think everybody kind of knows that about the guard. Um, but I'd also say with that is just how technical and also how capable um, the Army National Guard is and how integral they are as a ready force versus a reserve force. And so, you know, evidence is going to be seen here. Uh, what we've done the last, oh, I'd say since 9-11. Since 9-11, I don't know if your rucksack ever sat down for more than a year. Um, what we ask our soldiers to do over a two-week period, what we do in a weekend. Um, the fact that when I grew up as a lieutenant, used to hear about NTC back in 1980, and now it's a, an event that happens every four or five years for the brigade. Uh, just the, ma the, the rapid transformation of the brigade over at least since 9-11, 
which I'm realizing as a, I was a teacher too. And I remember being a teacher in my classroom when nine 11 happened. And now I have kids that were born well after nine 11 and they, they really look at you like, what are you talking about? Um, in that time period to see the complete transformation of the guard, it's pretty amazing. Uh, I think what's even more amazing that the ability of their, all, all of our members of the current brigade, how much they're asked to do, and they do it so extremely well and don't really question it. Um, it's like, I don't know if I could have took the platoon or company I enlisted to in 1994. I don't know if they'd stay in the Army for more than a year uh, if they just came in and we, we, we changed our training schedule of what we do today. Um, it's amazing, I guess, what I would, I would share with you. So our major, kind of the same question. You know, you, have you always thought that you would be a sergeant major coming up through the ranks? Absolutely not. <laughs> uh, no, it's, uh, it's exactly what Colonel Rankin said. You know, the intelligence that our soldiers have, the education and professionalism has grown vastly. You know, when I enlisted in uh, 99, there were still Vietnam veterans that were part of our formation and doing different things with that. Um, and, and those guys weren't always, once those soldiers left, um, we had to fend and learn for ourselves. So it was a big developmental piece because we lost a big piece of that uh, all the knowledge that they had with us. So, yeah, it's, it's transformed. I mean, NCOES has transformed everyone they're writing papers in now. That, that would not have happened, you know, back in the day. So, yeah. What are some of the elements that you're implementing now as part of the brigade combat team? Uh, a lot of what I would like to implement uh, as part of our command team is uh, developing values. So we need to align our values with the Army values. And that's one of the things that, as a leader, it's very hard to understand unless you know each person in your formation. I can't do it myself, but I can help our leaders, help our soldiers to do that, to make sure that they come in and understand the environment that we have, the culture and the climate that we have, and how it's positive, how it can help them, and how when they put trust in us that we're putting trust back in our soldiers. Everyone in one capacity or another has said, if I was in charge, this is what I would do to run things. What are some of the elements that you're implementing now? Well, I'm 47 years old, and I don't consider myself a very, you know, like an old guy. But I would say when I enlisted in the Army in 1994, my squad leader would have been probably a 37, 38-year-old. On my platoon sergeant would have been a 50-year-old. And my first sergeant I know was at least 50 to 56 years old. Um, now I have team leaders that are 22, 23 years old. I got squad leaders that are 26 years old and I got platoon sergeants that are like early thirties. The average age of my company commander is like 30 to 32 years old. What does that mean? We just put a lot of responsibility on very young soldiers to get to back what Sergeant Major said. Um, we got 24 year olds leading squads of 12, 13, you know, service members. And what's really important is prepare them. Uh, maturity. Uh, the other thing is we empower that 25-year-old. Uh, we have 25-year-old or 25-year-olds in charge of, you know, M1 Abram tanks, Bradleys, artillery systems, um, crew start weapons. Uh, being deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan, you're asked to make split-level decisions, especially at the E6 level. And some of those, like I said, I'll go back to some of those kids are 26, 25 years old. I um, mean, knowing the decisions they make in an E6 
are sometimes at that, that key moment are more important than I make as an 06 as the brigade commander back here. So it's really, you know, instilling with those, those E6s, um, just because you can, should you, and if you do think about the second and third order effects, that decision, and that's a lot to ask somebody in a split decision when they're maybe taking some small arms fire, um, or they're, you know, I think evidence two years ago during the riots, you had individuals that people in their face saying very derogatory terms, very intense situations. And yes, you have live ammunition and you're in a really tough situation to make the right decision to be that, mm, that model community member that's trying to keep peace and stability in your community uh, in a very tough situation. Uh, and it ain't going to be me and the Sergeant Major standing there with you sometimes. Uh, and so it's like empowering our leaders to the lowest level to make good decisions for the organization, if that makes sense. From the mid-90s through the global war on terror and into today, you've seen the formations of the Minnesota National Guard change as the Army mission has changed. What have been some of the landmarks and adjustments that the brigade has seen over the years? I'd say a key piece uh, is the modernization piece. So, you know, when I joined uh, 2136 in 1997-98, you know, it was a really big deal to have external evaluators come up to Camp Ripley and, and you know, take a you know, take a clipboard and follow behind you and say how well you did a battle drill or, you know, uh, a lane. Uh, now we've shifted it to is uh, the modernization of our equipment and getting deployed as an ABCT. So back in those days, it was a heavy division or a heavy brigade uh, and, and uh, almost separate battalions. Now we, as an organization, you know, we're one of five ABCTs in the whole National Guard. There's only nine in the entire active duty component. And so what's asked of the ABCTs is used to be on a four-year rotation. You'd be home for four and then deploy. Now we're on a five-of-one model where, you know, actually we were, you were home for three and deployed the fourth year. Now we're back on a five-year model. Only thing I share with that is that that's why there's a demand because there's such a low supply. Um, you typically have two in South Korea. You got two in Europe, and then you had rotational forces into Kuwait. Now the National Guard owns Kuwait, so it's constantly a pull on the ABCTs. So I think for a lot of people that might be listening, why the op temple of the National Guard? Uh, I'd also say that the active duty component probably lost almost 250,000 members. That's the cost of modernizing our military between the Navy, the Army, the Air Force. Um, as any anybody that's ever been part of a business, it's people that cost the most, not necessarily systems. And so sometimes I hate to say you got to sacrifice uh, how many people you can have to make sure you have the right equipment. And I've watched that through our brigade. Um, the demands increase um, because of just the low supply of, um, of the armored brigade combat teams that we have here in Minnesota. Would you agree that the modern battlefield is more technology-focused and less focused on the soldiers on the ground? It is to a point. That, that's where we want to be, right? Because if we don't have to put a soldier in harm's way and we can do it remotely, that's exactly what we want to do. But we can't substitute technology for experience, right? So uh, as the colonel talked about, one of the things we've changed is going from a coin or a counterinsurgency fight back to large-scale combat operations. So as we're doing that, obviously everybody's technology has gone forward but we're trying to get back to the experience that we had when I first enlisted and we were doing, you know, more TEPs and uh, the different evaluations that they have. 
uh, at the platoon level that we'd get once every five years to now that we can look at and do that ourselves and um, push that experience back for the leaders that are still around that have been through that. Um, you know, that, that's one of the, the biggest challenges that we have is, you know, retention and keeping our soldiers around with all that experience. Is that part of the overall team concept that you're trying to build? Definitely. And understanding that, uh, that's one of the things that uh, helped me learn that experience is having been in the engineers, having been in infantry and armor and cavalry, is understanding how to use those team concepts together, uh, especially when we look at the staff that have only been in as a lieutenant, as an XO um, executive officer at the company level and then come up to a battalion level and they're trying to make a plan to integrate these two and they've only done one thing or only partially done that one thing. So that's uh, that's where our NCO Corps comes in and provides that uh, experience, especially to the staff and, and advising the officers and the commanders. I also think that what sh- they have this military term now called multi-domain operations. And uh, what does that really mean? You know, I think uh, if you've watched Netflix, you've seen Space Force, and it's kind of funny to laugh at it. Well, you consider that, uh, you'll take what's going on in uh, Europe with the Ukraine. Some of the artillery shells that you fire are just shooting rounds into buildings. While our modern military, we have satellite feeds, we have precision munitions, because in a lot of metro areas, you don't want to, you do not want to uh, have any kind of casualties. That technicality goes right down to that that, that gunner on a gun tube, uh, a, a tank commander, uh, and so the um, the team of teams from that space force is just satellite imagery, satellite communications, down to the UAV feeds that we get, real time intelligence, so you can make timely decisions to mitigate you know, uh, civilian casualties or catastrophic, uh, um, you know, civilian infrastructures like hospitals and schools to make sure that you can achieve your mission uh, but don't cause a you know, humanitarian crisis as the results of what you're asked to do, especially with the amount of firepower and lethality you have in an armor brigade combat team. So, you know, you're working with lots of different teams from, um, civilian organizations, governments. I mean, so yeah, there's like a team of teams to do what we do, which in my mind, back when I joined in 94 for some college money in a fueler, it's what we do as an ABCT. It's just, I think people would be surprised what what happens out here at Camp Ripley or what the Minnesota Army National Guard is actually capable of doing and does fairly well. In your experience, are the formations able to be multi-domain, multi-theater, joint operations type organizations, or is there a flexibility in there? So actually, you know, we're on the annual training status right now for a couple of weeks. So, I mean, the Star Major here, and we have our entire staff here. So one thing that's going to happen, and I'm guessing some people saw some trains coming back from Kuwait. Well, that's a bunch of equipment that was over in Kuwait. And that equipment is, you know, really 1980s equipment. And so you're seeing modernization across the entire Army as we go back to what Sergeant Major said, a counterinsurgency, you know, dismounts and civilian populations and some Humvees, and like even the Humvee vehicles going away, the Abrams tanks getting a major upgrade, our artillery system getting a major upgrade. Um, you're seeing there are six major platforms in the Army. There's different platforms in the Air Force. So we as the Army National Guard, you know, in the old days, we just have our old, 
I don't want to say round out equipment, whatever the active duty wasn't using, we would get. Now we're aligned to have the same modern equipment in the Armored Brigade combat team as any Armored Brigade combat team in the Army's arsenal. So what you're going to see happen over the next two or three years is uh, new tanks. Now the tank, to a person just sees a tank, they can't tell any difference. But there's, you know, the optics, the armor, um, the, the communications and within electronics versus hydraulics there's a lot of nuances that you know if we took a, a you know some retired tanker from here from maybe 194 who was on the m60 tank and took him to the abrams they probably couldn't tell the difference between a a1 versus the new set v's that we're getting um, but a lot of capabilities sergeant major is a master gunner so he knows all the technicalities the bradley fighting vehicle looks identical but there's a lot of things in there they've added since i crawled on bradley in 97 so we're going to go through that whole modernization out here at Camp Ripley over the next two years. And then I think on the other end, that's really important for people is that, you know, that comes with 55, 56 days of money to get, you know, all of our individuals that are on those vehicles fully trained so they know how to, you know, fully utilize that platform to, to make sure we do what it's intended to do. Yep. And the one of the biggest pieces for that is interoperability. So if we replace an active duty component or they replace us, we're on the same vehicles doing the same things. And the switchology is what we like to call it, is all the same. So it's not, uh, you know, back in the day when you'd have to manually move the knob to get to the range on the Bradley and try to identify it yourself. Now you have the laser range finder, and it's a simple button push, and you're right there. So uh, definitely interoperability is one of the key components of why we need to do this as well. Is this teamwork important for the overall plan for modernization? Uh, I will say yes. So part of it is because we've had such a high uh, use of our soldiers. You know, we call it a high op tempo uh, for everything that the state asked them to do. And, you know, we've done four years straight of 30-day annual trainings rather than the 15-day annual training. With this modernization, we get to take a step back, provide some predictability and uh, in both the training and the training schedules. Uh, we're, we're not racing towards a live fire gate that we have to meet. We don't have to have table six done by the 1st of May this year. We can take our time and intentionally and deliberately make sure that we meet all of the training standards to make sure that we have the experience that we need uh, once this modernization is over and we take control and, and, and start training ourselves. And I, I don't know if you're still in part of the secrets or whatnot, but what are some of the benchmarks of our formations that you're striving for as far as moving forward with modernization? Uh, for me, I would say that my approach coming into command has been balance. So on the civilian side, I'm a school superintendent. That's my day job, but I'm also a father of four kids. I got a son who's going to be a college, you know, uh, freshman next year. You know, I've been gone four deployments, five years of his 18 years on earth. I mean, and hard to think that... You're a retired guardsman. Did you really think five years and out of one in four or one in five years you'd be forward deployed in the guard? That was the one model I joined in 94. Um, I'm a husband. I'm a community member. I think one of the things as we go forward, I think the secret to the next two years is recalibrating um, as best we can to protect that, that uh that social contract that our soldiers have with their their families, their employers, their communities, 
also getting in line what what their goals are you know some some young people are trying to go back and get that 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 certificate maybe a two-year four-year degree uh, maybe they can finally accept that promotion at, at work um, some I tell you what there's probably gonna be a lot of babies in the next two years because we got a lot of young soldiers come back from deployment I've seen a lot of marriages in the last you know put on hold or got married right before they left so I think one of the secrets is as we modernize Sergeant Major alluded to is that balance of what we ask our soldiers that we need to get done, uh, respect what we have done the last four or five years. Um, Sergeant Major and I are very careful. Um, you know, when I see that young 26-year-old E6 who's probably on their second deployment, uh, entering their second enlistment contract, we're really, uh, we really need them to have a third year a third enlistment contract. And so this now is the time we need to balance a little. So as best we can, we're trying to uh, prevent the extra stuff from coming in and saying, what do we have to do? Uh, also realizing though, we're one of the five ABCTs in the garden, you know, one of the, one of the 14 ABCTs in the army and uh, world events will sometimes dictate or determine how much you know, you your country needs you to fulfill its federal mission while we're well aware that uh, one particular incident doesn't even have to in Minnesota could uh, ask us to do a, a state mission also. So, you know, we're trying to protect that and also coming out of a pandemic, which I don't think we're out of it. I think we're just in a, well, I'll, maybe just in a better place right now uh, that we're always ready to answer when we're needed. So trying to have that balance is what, I know me and Sergeant Major over the next couple of years have been working really hard is, hey, how much do I need, you know, Tony, uh, this next year? Because let's get it back to 39 days. Knowing full well, we might have to have him do more. Um, that's what we're working hard to do. Yep. Yeah, I, I echo that sentiment, sir. That's uh, that's exactly where, where we want to be a year from now is, you know, as the colonel talked about, 2001, right, 9-11. So... We're just over 20 years past that. So a lot of the folks uh, that came in at that time are now able to leave the organization at that 20-year mark for retirement. So obviously we need that experience. We want them to stay in. And how can we do that? It's creating the environment, creating the culture and the climate that makes them want to be here as much as we want to be here. Some predictability, you know. Uh, Hey, this one... You know, we're going to go to AT in 2023, this two-week period. Other than that, uh, we're trying to get away from, you know, we call them Muta 6s. What that means is a Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So, you know, a Muta A would be a Thursday, Friday, Sunday. I've heard as many as Muta 15s, Muta 16s. So me and Sergeant Major, like, how do we get this back to a max of a few Muta 6s, which means, you know, but if you live down in Winona and you're going to come up here to Camp Ripley to shoot, probably can't do that in a Saturday, Sunday You'd spend all day Saturday getting up here. Uh, it gets dark. So, you know, just trying to limit that as much as we can uh, to allow our soldiers to be back home in their communities as much as possible. Uh, but making sure that if we get the phone call, whenever it might be to do whatever we might do, um, our soldiers will be successful in whatever they're asked to do. So I was like, there's a lot of balance there, I, I think. But I think for me, it's predictability for our soldiers. Well, thank you, gentlemen. Is there anything else you'd like to add? I just want to take this opportunity, you know, for people that do listen to this, uh, you know, um, for, for a lot of my friends, uh, my neighbors, you know, they, they see them, the, the guard that maybe they grew up with in the, the 70s, 80s, and they watch it now. And I think that uh, uh, 
I think they need to know that a lot of our soldiers are working really hard and uh, they're, they're asked a lot of things for some of our employers. You know, uh, we appreciate your flexibility with our soldiers. We do think you get a better soldier, better trained, um, because I do think they get some skills on the weekend. Uh, for me and the Sergeant Major, we're going to work really hard to return that soldier back to you uh, as we're in a little quieter period. Uh, for our families, I can't thank you enough for um, allowing your, 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 your soldier to serve. Uh, I know that, you know, my daughter reminded me because last year I wasn't here for Easter as we were preparing for the Easter holiday, but I did make her first communion. Uh, how many birthdays, Easter's, Christmases, uh, family reunions we've missed, you know. Know that uh, we don't do that uh, because we want to miss those events. Uh, we do it because we're needed, and, and me and the Sergeant Major are committed to, to limit those as much as we can in the next couple of years. And then I think finally to our soldiers, thanks for all you do. I know it sounds pretty cliche, but um, we ask a lot of our soldiers. Uh, when I talk to a lot of them, they're extremely proud to serve, and uh, they never really ask for a pat in the back. I know for me, you know, uh, yeah, I try not to wear my uniform just because, you know, not, not in a bad way, but it's like, thanks for your service. And sometimes it's hard to hear because, like, I enjoy serving, but uh, what I'm trying to say is a lot of our soldiers are very humble, um, but I, I, I can't thank them enough for all they've done. And I'm honored to serve alongside them. Yeah. The, the thing that I'll say that goes with that is, you know, the analogy is who is Superman if he's not wearing his outfit? It's not Clark Kent. He's still Superman. He still has all the powers and does all the things. Our sol That's exactly what our soldiers are. They're the superheroes within our communities that do all those things, whether they're wearing the uniform or not. They're the ones with the values and the core concepts that will help either in the community then the state, and then our nation. So definitely thank you to our soldiers for that. Well, thank you, gentlemen. This concludes another episode of the Ripley Recall. Again, today I had my guests are Colonel Charles Rankin and Command Sergeant Major Ryan Hofstede of the 1st Armored Brigade Combat Team. Today we are discussing modernization of the force. Please join us for other episodes of the Ripley Recall. The link below will show you exactly where you can find that information. Thank you, gentlemen. No, thank you. Thank you.